Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today, I would once again like to offer you some fashion advice. Why not celebrate that you've survived the worst part of the year? The holiday-free, dark and cold period the Swedes call the Ox Weeks by going on a little shopping spree. The Scandinavian History Podcast webshop is fully stocked with t-shirts, hoodies and more. And if your wardrobe is bursting at the seams already, you might consider a tote bag, a laptop case or a decorative pillow. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. Perhaps you'd enjoy a coffee mug with a message, Wake up early if you want another man's life or land. A onesie for your baby with the text, Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or wall art for your office saying, Speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. Now, with that bit of self-promotion out of the way, let's get back to the action. Last time, we talked about one of the most remarkable political leaders in medieval Scandinavia. You may even say she was one of the brightest shining stars on the medieval Scandinavian firmament, if you were into that kind of language. If you don't remember who I'm referring to, or if you skipped the last episode for some reason, I am, of course, talking about Margaret of Denmark. She, or rather her son, inherited Denmark from Margaret's father, Valdemar Dawn, and Norway from Margaret's husband, Håkon of Norway. Later, she evicted Albert of Mecklenburg from Sweden, and was then set to govern Denmark, Norway, and Sweden through her son Olav for a long time. Unfortunately for everyone involved, but arguably most for Olav, the young king died suddenly when he was only a teenager. This meant that Margaret lost her power base and would have been relegated to the margins of history if she hadn't acted fast. But she did act fast. Already at midsummer 1389, she managed to convince a meeting of nobles to accept her sister's grandson as king of Norway, on condition that he changed his name to Eric. But Margaret would be regent because Eric was still only a child. Eric was elected king of Denmark at a meeting of Danish nobles in Viborg at New Year's in 1396, and the Swedes did the same on July 23, 1396. Young Eric was crowned king of all three Scandinavian kingdoms in 1397, but the event was far more than a mere coronation of a new monarch, however grand and solemn the event was. No, the coronation of Eric of Pomerania, as we know him today, signified the beginning of a new political era in Scandinavian politics. And that's what we're going to discuss today. Episode 58, Unionizing. In September 1396, so only a few weeks after he'd been elected king of Sweden at the traditional place for such elections, the Stones of Mora outside Uppsala, 
Eric and Margaret met the Swedish Council of the Realm in Nyköping. At that meeting, a few important decisions were made. One of them was for the crown to take back lands and estates that had been granted to various nobles during the reign of Margaret's old nemesis, Albert of Mecklenburg. In addition, anyone who had been ennobled by Albert was to lose his newly acquired aristocratic status and any and all castles or fortresses constructed during Albert's reign were to be torn down, unless Margaret decided otherwise. She was also granted large tracts of land herself. These decisions, published on September 23, 1396, was a major victory for Margaret. She'd managed to strengthen the central power of the crown at the expense of the Swedish nobility, since they basically lost all the gains they had made ever since they rose up against King Magnus Eriksson, her late father-in-law. But there was one more decision made at Nyköping that September day that went beyond the regular power struggle between crown and aristocracy. A decision that hinted at a new political reality that was taking shape on the horizon. That was the decision to call a new meeting the following year. At that meeting, the nobility, not only from Sweden, but from all the three countries Margaret controlled, would participate. And the stated purpose of that get-together would be to establish perpetual peace between the Scandinavian kingdoms. The main event in terms of visibility of that meeting, which took place in the cathedral of the port city of Kalmar in southeastern Sweden, was, of course, the coronation of 14-year-old King Eric, the 3rd slash 7th slash 13th. This was the goal of years of Margaret's machinations and maneuverings. It was her crowning glory, even though Eric was the one who was crowned. Symbolically, Eric's coronation as king of three Scandinavian kingdoms took place on the feast day of the Holy Trinity, June 17, 1397. As I mentioned before, this was a fairly grand affair, with a guest list that included pretty much everyone who was anyone in the Scandinavian elites in the late 14th century. The ceremony itself was conducted by two of the three Scandinavian archbishops, the Danish one from Lund and his Swedish counterpart from Uppsala. The Norwegian archbishop from Trondheim wasn't present, which has led some people to speculate that Eric had already been crowned king of Norway at an earlier date. Or maybe the Norwegian archbishop just couldn't be bothered to make the trip. Who knows? But as swanky as the coronation was, it wasn't actually the most consequential event to take place during the meetup of all those Scandinavian aristos in the summer of 1397. Margaret had gathered them all in Kalmar not only to witness Eric's coronation, but to convince them to embark on a new political adventure, to merge the three Scandinavian kingdoms into one political entity, a union. A union that, based on the fact that they all met in Kalmar, has come to be known to us as the Kalmar Union. This was to be something more than a mere personal union, where one king happened to be king over more than one kingdom. Like what we've seen already with Sven Forkbeard and Knut the Great, who had been kings of Denmark and Norway, and even England for a bit, and lately Magnus Eriksson, who was king of Sweden and Norway. That kind of personal union usually breaks up after a generation or two when different heirs are given their different crowns. But this was supposed to be different. This was supposed to be a permanent union. It took the gathered grandees about a month to reach some kind of agreement, but at the end they could present a document known to history as the Letter of Union, which still survives to this day and is kept at the National Archive in Copenhagen, Denmark. 
This document set out to regulate the future relations between the monarch and the three kingdoms, and it contains five basic articles. One, the three kingdoms were to remain three separate states, but a single king was to rule all three of them. The king was to be elected, as as was the custom in Denmark and Sweden, but one of the previous king's sons was supposed to be elected if possible. Two, the king was supposed to rule each kingdom in accordance with its own laws and customs. In other words, there wasn't going to be any harmonization of legislation or any common pan-union legislative process. Three, if one of the three kingdoms would be threatened by war, the other two must come to its defense. Four, anyone who was sentenced to outlawry in one of the three kingdoms would be an outlaw in all three kingdoms automatically. Just a reminder, outlawry was a common sentence in Viking Age Scandinavia, where prisons weren't really a thing. If you were decreed an outlaw, it meant that anyone had the right to kill you on sight. And this particular punishment survived into the Middle Ages in Scandinavia. And finally, article number five, the king would be the one negotiating with foreign powers on behalf of all three kingdoms. In other words, the foreign policy of all three kingdoms would be in the hands of the king. The letter of union also stated that six further letters were to be written and they would confirm this new order of things. Two of these letters were to be sent to Denmark, two to Norway and two to Sweden. The king, the councils of the realms and other major stakeholders were to affix their seals to these six letters. And that's where we start to run into issues. You see, no such letters exist, or at least we have no record of any such letters ever existing. That has caused some to call the legality of the Letter of Union into question, and I'm not only talking about modern-day historians fighting over seemingly insignificant details from the past, as is their wont, but there were actually people when the Kalmar Union was still in existence who claimed it wasn't legitimate because it hadn't been established according to proper protocol. These opponents of the Union also like to point out that the Letter of Union was written on paper. Everyone knows that legally binding international treaties need to be written on parchment to be valid. At least, that was the custom in the Middle Ages when these kinds of things were considered important. Furthermore, the text is signed by 17 attendees who were supposed to add their seals to the document, but only 10 actually affixed their seals, 7 Swedes and 3 Danes, and not a single Norwegian. And they've done so in a sloppy manner, and, crucially, the seals aren't attached to the document with ribbons, but rather merely stamped onto the paper. The sloppy impression is strengthened even further by the fact that there are even a few spelling mistakes in the text. The sloppiness of the letter of union, the paper, the spelling mistakes and the lack of seals hanging from ribbons, is contrasted with the proclamation of coronation, which also was issued in Kalmar. This document, which confirmed that all had been legal and above board during Margaret's regency and promised fealty to King Eric, was written on parchment and the seals of no fewer than 60 attending nobles were affixed to it, neatly dangling in ribbons under the text. So clearly, they had parchment in Kalmar in June 1397, and there were plenty of people around to sign important documents. Still, the Letter of Union looks like it does. For that reason, it's been argued that the Letter of Union was nothing but a suggestion, a draft, an idea, 
It was simply an attempt by Margaret to establish a union, an attempt that failed because it was rejected. Nothing was decided and the letter wasn't legally binding. That's why it wasn't written on parchment. Others have defended the legality of the letter, saying it was legally binding despite its unorthodox design. But if that's the case, why was no proper letter of union issued following all the medieval conventions for legally binding documents? Didn't Margaret, who was so shrewd and experienced, realize that relying on this flimsy piece of paper would cause problems further down the line? One explanation, favored by a Swedish historian from the early 20th century, is that Margaret was quite happy with the dubious status of the document, because that meant she, and the king, didn't have to respect the limitations the letter of union placed on the powers of the monarch. This would also explain why the king hasn't signed the letter, something that arguably would have been needed for a document of this nature to be valid. Other historians have argued that there never was any issue, and that the letter of union actually was a valid legal document, and that the signatures really do confirm what the nobles who met in Kalmar decided. The 17 people who signed the letter of union were the most senior people who participated in the proceedings, including the Swedish and Danish archbishops and the Norwegian Lord High Chancellor. The Swedish historian Gottfried Karlsson even argued that there actually was a proper letter of union, written on parchment without any spelling mistakes and with seals dangling on ribbons and everything. Karlsson explains the absence of this proper letter by assuming that it must have been lost at the very latest in the early 16th century. Furthermore, Carlson argues that the preserved letter was meant for the Norwegian contingent to bring with them back to Norway to show to the Norwegian Council of the Realm as proof of what had been decided in Kalmar. This, Carlson said, explained why there are no seals belonging to Norwegian nobles on the preserved letter. They would have been present in Norway, confirming the content of the letter of union to their colleagues who hadn't bothered to travel to Sweden for the coronation of King Eric. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter who's right and whether the surviving document was considered a legally binding letter of union or if it was a copy of a legally binding document that had been lost for half a millennium or if it was nothing but a discarded royal proposal rejected by the nobles who gathered in Kalmar. It doesn't matter because the union came into being and Eric was recognized as the king of this new political entity called the Kalmar Union. As I've mentioned before, the Kalmar Union was the largest realm in Europe. It included Denmark, Norway and its North Atlantic possessions, so Greenland, Iceland, the Faroe, Shetland and Orkney Islands, and Sweden, including Finland. There has never, before or after, been a larger political entity in Scandinavian history, so it covered a massive geographic area. But population-wise, it ranked further down in the list of European states. In this enormous realm, there were only approximately one and a half million inhabitants. True, we're talking only 50 years after the plague, but it's still not particularly impressive. It's likely that the majority of the population lived in Denmark, and another half a million or so lived in Sweden. So Norway and its North Atlantic islands were sparsely populated. Still, even though the population was so small, the establishment of the Union granted internal peace to the Scandinavian kingdoms, at least to begin with. 
and that was undoubtedly a boon for the small population, which had suffered through several wars between various Scandinavian monarchs in the past. There were other things that spoke for the success of the Kalmar Union as well. In hindsight, it's always easy to say that it was obvious that it wasn't going to work, but at the time, in the summer of 1397, it was far from obvious. The peoples of the three kingdoms spoke languages that were, and still are, mutually intelligible, except for Danish, and their cultures are quite similar. You could argue that the difference in dialects and culture within any of these three kingdoms were just as significant, if not more so, than the differences across the borders. And the elites of the three countries also had common interests. Many of them were related to each other, and in several cases they owned land in more than one of the three kingdoms. For such landowners, it was much more convenient if the countries where they owned land weren't at war with each other. So, far from being some Frankenstein's monster of a state, the Kalmar Union had a lot of things going for it. And let's not forget that it would exist for more than a century. And that's more than you can say for states that may have seen much more permanent, but lasted a considerably shorter period of time. I mean, Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia all spring to mind. Taking into account the fact that most of the people lived in the southern end of Scandinavia, it's not particularly surprising that the political center of the Kalmar Union was firmly planted in Denmark. Margaret did realize, however, that it was crucial for the long-term survival of the Union that she'd give Norway, and especially Sweden, attention as well, both by visiting frequently and by taking their interests into account in her decision-making process. And she did so, making sure to keep the peace within the Kalmar Union her whole life, even when her principal attention was placed elsewhere. So where did Margaret direct most of her attention in the first years of the 1400s? Well, as we've seen over the last few episodes, she had two main goals, pushing back the power and influence of the Hansa and gaining territory in Schleswig, basically countering German interference from the Hansa and the various German princes, whose power she and many others felt was growing in Scandinavia. The creation of the Kalmar Union should probably also be seen against the backdrop of this growing German threat and Margaret's will to counter it. As far as domestic policy was concerned, Margaret did what she could to strengthen the crown. She did so by continuing her father Valdemar Don's policy of retrieving lands and estates that had been granted to various noblemen, and even ecclesiastical institutions, under previous weaker monarchs. This was a double win, since the redirection of the income from these lands both strengthened the crown and weakened the aristocracy, making any further rebellions against the crown less likely to succeed. She also methodically concentrated political power into her own hands. When the Lord's High Stewards of Sweden, Denmark and Norway all died within a few years of each other in the late 1380s, she never replaced these high-ranking officials within the respective councils of the realm. When the office of the Lord High Constable of Sweden became vacant, Margaret didn't fill that vacancy either further steering power away from the aristocracy dominating the council and into her own hands. Yes, yes, technically into the hands of King Eric, but you know he had nothing to do with any of this. As part of this policy of strengthening the crown, Margaret also continued her father's policy of picking the right men for the highest ecclesiastical offices. She made sure that anyone who was appointed bishop was a friend of the crown and would be willing to lend the monarch money if the need would arise. 
At the same time, she was scrupulous about not causing a break in the relations between crown and church, and she was helped in this ambition by the fact that the papacy was weak at the time, occupied as it was with the so-called Western Schism, where popes and anti-popes were busy fighting each other. What was going on in Scandinavia was of literal or no concern to popes and anti-popes alike. Still, the church in Sweden complained about having to pay taxes, comparing their situation with that of the biblical Jews who were slaves to pharaohs in Egypt. But there was never any open conflict between the church and the crown during Margaret's lifetime. But there might have been if she hadn't died when she did, since the Swedish church was once again gearing up to protest against their financial situation when the plague claimed Margaret's life on board that ship in Flensburg Bay in 1412. By those who supported the Kalmar Union, Margaret has generally been seen as a force for good, a wise and strong leader who did what she had to do in order to further the interests of the kingdoms she had been set to govern. Those who have been more critical to the establishment of the Union, not least various Swedes, have tended to describe her as ruthless and power-hungry. I'm not entirely convinced that those two views are mutually exclusive. I'd say she can be described as all of those things, and whether you characterize her as strong or ruthless, determined or power-grabbing, probably says more about you than it does about Margaret. Whatever you think of her, though, Margaret surely knew what she was doing. She set out to strengthen the crown at the expense of the aristocracy, and to strengthen Scandinavia at the expense of its rivals, primarily in Germany. She also knew that for the Union to succeed, it needed to benefit everyone, at least the rich and the powerful in all three kingdoms. So in her policies, she was careful not to favour one country over another. The popularity of the Union would evaporate if one of the constituent kingdoms would be favoured at the expense of the others. It would have served her successors well to remember that. When King Eric finally got to run the show after Margaret's death, you can see immediate shifts in the way the Kalmar Union was governed, reversing some, but not all, of Margaret's policies. First of all, he tried to get the aristocracy to like him by both calling it the Danehof, the gathering of Danish nobles, and by returning some of the powers to the Danish Council of the Realm that Margaret had reserved for herself. Eric also cancelled some of Margaret's decisions to return land and estates from Swedish noblemen to the crown. In the short term, these were all actions that would have made him popular in high places and lessened the risk for a coup or a rebellion against his rule. But at the same time, he was voluntarily weakening the power and influence of the crown. That could be just as dangerous, if not more so. Strengthening the local aristocracy at the expense of the central power of the crown also flew in the face of his attempts to strengthen the Kalmar Union, which he was clearly interested in doing. Unlike Margaret, who seems to have viewed the Union as a practical tool to achieve certain goals, King Eric was a true believer in the Union as a concept. He called Union Diets, with representatives from all three kingdoms, which met in Copenhagen and he designed a flag and a coat of arms for the Union. The flag sported a red cross on a yellow field, and to modernize, it looks very Scandinavian, since all modern Nordic countries have flags with this design. But at the time, Denmark was the only country with a flag with a cross on it, so to people in the early 15th century, the flag must have looked like a version of the Danish flag, the Dannebrog. And that may not have sat all that well in some Norwegian and Swedish circles. 
another thing Eric did that gave people the impression that he viewed the Kalmar Union as an extended Denmark was to spend almost all of his time in that kingdom. Margaret had spent a lot of time in Sweden, partly to keep the Swedish nobility happy and partly to keep a close eye on them. But Eric couldn't be bothered. The first few years after Margaret's death, he did go north of the border every now and then, but soon enough the visits became increasingly rare. We have no indication that he visited Norway even once after Margaret died in 1412. And that wasn't the only way the Norwegians were increasingly marginalized during the reign of Eric of Pomerania. He undermined the power of the Norwegian Council of the Realm, and the only real authority they eventually retained was that of adjudicating legal cases. Eric appointed Danes as bishops and commanders of the various castles that served to control Norway, most notably Bohus, close to the modern-day city of Gothenburg in Sweden, Akerhus in Oslo, Tunsberghus in Tunsberg on the western shore of the Oslo Fjord, and Bergenhus in the important port city of Bergen. King Eric pulled the same stunt in Sweden, but there he ran into more opposition. It was in violation of King Magnus Eriksson's law to place foreigners as commanders of Swedish castles, but Eric still put Germans in charge of Stockholm and Gripsholm castles. The castles of Axvala, Kalmar and Vesteros were handed over to Danish commanders. Several other castles were also manned by foreigners, and only a few castles in Finland were run by Swedish nobles. Needless to say, the policy alienated King Eric from the Swedish aristocracy, not only because it was in violation of the law, but also, and let's face it, primarily, because it robbed them of prestigious and lucrative job opportunities. Eric's policy may have annoyed the Norwegian and Swedish nobility, but the king wasn't stupid. He probably knew that was going to happen, and he did it anyway. Not because he wanted to provoke the Swedes and the Norwegians, or because he was too dumb to realize it would annoy them, but because this was his way of trying to strengthen the Kalmar Union. By making foreigners without any local connections governors and commanders of castles, these commanders would be dependent on him, and therefore not join in rebellions against him. That would ultimately strengthen Eric's control over his realm, at least in theory. But the thing that annoyed people the most wasn't Eric's hiring policy, but the way he ran the war over Schleswig. We talked about this already last time. Eric inherited the war in Schleswig from Margaret, and just like her, he spent a lot of his efforts and resources on conquering the duchy just south of the Danish border. And it was this war, more than anything else, that endangered the survival of the Union he was king over. We talked about the development of the war at some length last time, so I won't go over it again. Suffice it to say that the war was largely seen as a Danish affair. But because of the Union, the other kingdoms suffered from the war without really seeing any potential positive outcome, except for a swift end to the conflict. The primary source of dissatisfaction was the new and ever-high taxes that was supposed to pay for this costly and seemingly never-ending war. Even the sound juice, the toll paid for passing through the Ersen Strait, annoyed the Swedes. They didn't have to pay the toll, mind you, but they still suffered from it indirectly because the sound Jews provoked the Hanseatic League to boycott all of Eric's kingdoms, including Sweden. The value of the Swedish currency plummeted and the important exports of butter and iron dwindled to a trickle. The situation was untenable and unrest was stirring. Something needed to change before it would all explode in King Eric's face. 
Next time, we'll see what happened. Spoiler alert, it's not going to be good. But before we end today, I've received another email from a listener, this time regarding the usage of runes in medieval Scandinavia, apropos the discovery of hundreds of medieval runic inscriptions in Bergen in 1955 that I mentioned in episode 55, where we talked about the Hanseatic League. This discovery changed the way we understand the usage of runes, and Philip from Sweden has written in, pointing out that Bergen was far from the only place where runes remained in use throughout the Middle Ages. This is definitely true. Even though public use of runes disappeared in the Middle Ages in most of Scandinavia, private or even secret usage remained. Where and when runes remained in use, or were reintroduced, is a fascinating topic of research, and in the second half of the 20th century, research in this field has made dramatic advances. The 1955 Bergen discovery of this kind of private usage of runes in the Middle Ages was one of the largest, and crucially, earliest. But many other, albeit much more modest, finds have been made in other parts of Scandinavia as well. Earlier generations of historians and archaeologists tended to focus on the public usage of runes or runestones, graves, and other monuments. The private use was overlooked, just like so much else of everyday life was overlooked by historians and archaeologists who preferred to focus on grand edifices and great men. But later generations of scholars have extracted a lot of interesting data from analyzing private usage of runes, in amulets, various day-to-day objects, and even some private letters, such as in the Bergen dig. Regarding the switch from runes to the Latin alphabet in public carvings, there are a number of milestones. The first one is the introduction of Christianity and the Latin language, which led to Scandinavians starting to write using Latin characters as well. But the runes didn't disappear completely, at least not everywhere. In Denmark, for instance, runes were still sometimes used until the mid-14th century, and according to one theory, the Danish use of runes died out with the plague. Another theory about why Scandinavians stopped using runes in public is the influence of the Hanseatic League. In places where the German merchants held sway, the Latin alphabet replaced runes almost completely on graves and other inscriptions with high visibility. It just wasn't fashionable to write with runes anymore, so the locals copied the writing habits of their new continental sophisticated neighbors. In that context, continued usage of runes has then been interpreted by some scholars as a sort of act of defiance in the face of the Germans and their foreign cultural influence. That theory makes the find in Bergen extra interesting, since it would imply that perhaps the local Norwegians continue to use runes in private in reaction to the German domination over the public life in their city. I know this is speculation, but a potentially similar usage of runes as an act of opposition can be found on the islands of Gotland and Iceland. Runes were in use continuously on Gotland, which makes it one of the few places where that's the case but the usage increased after the Danish invasion in 1361. Similarly, runic inscriptions started appearing in Iceland in the 14th century, roughly at the same time as the island came under Danish rule. Regarding Iceland, that's extra interesting, since we have no Viking Age runestones from Iceland and only very few other Icelandic runic inscriptions that may be from the Viking Age. We also see a reintroduction of the runes in the early 16th century to many places in Sweden, 
where the custom had died out long before. This renaissance for runes was a result of scholars misidentifying runes used on the island of Gotland as the alphabet used by the Goths, then jumping to the conclusion that the Goths must have come from Gotland, making the conquerors of Europe Swedish. This theory quickly became very popular in Swedish academic circles, and it became fashionable among many priests, who were among the best educated people at the time, to learn to read and write runes. When they finished their studies and were sent to be parish priests in churches all over the country, they brought the knowledge about and love for runes with them, and reintroduced this writing system in many places throughout the country. But it's worth noting that this isn't an organic continuation of an unbroken tradition of writing with runes. The study of runes is a fascinating and developing field, and if you want to know more, Philip recommends the podcast K-Pod, belonging to the Swedish National Heritage Board. I wholeheartedly second that recommendation, but it is a Swedish language show, so if your knowledge of the language of glory and heroes is limited, I'm afraid your enjoyment of K-Pod may be as well. Thank you, Philip, for writing in and for the podcast recommendation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to like and follow the Scandinavian History Podcast on Facebook or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also do what Philip did and send me questions or comments about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.